Bruce Mansfield and I met at a game store in San Diego. He was I, I listened to that. I listened to that. And so we played Twilight Struggle. We played three hours of game. And I heard there was a lot of guys around. Yeah, yeah around so we, we'll, you'll condense it down. So we condensed it into 15 minutes. So you really couldn't follow the game, but it was just interesting. Yeah, you're playing a game while you're talking. Talk, which is kind of yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you know, that could be your thing, by the way. You know, like you know, there's that guy. Um, so Jerry Seinfeld does it with the comics get in the car. Yes. And then that other guy, the English guy with a, you know, Paul McCartney sings in the car with them while yeah, they're driving around. Yeah. This could Just be, play games, this could be like, the, could be like you know, the, the Harold Buchanan handle is, you know, playing mm-hmm. games with game designers while talking. Hey gang, it's Harold. Here's another podcast. This podcast is singularly composed of an interview with prolific war game designer, innovator, and icon Mark Herman. We'll discuss what he's working on now that he is once again a full-time game designer. Mark Herman holds a bachelor's degree in history from SUNY Stony Brook and a master's degree in national security studies from Georgetown University. He's been an adjunct professor teaching military strategy and analytic methods for Georgetown University. He's also taught and lectured at the U.S. Naval War College and the University of Maryland. He started his war game design career at SPI, was president of Victory Games, and he's also designed games for Avalon Hill and GMT Games. Some of his more notable titles include From SPI, The Next War, and Mech War II. From Victory Games, Gulf Strike, and Pacific War. From Avalon Hill, We the People, and For the People. And from GMT Games, Empire of the Sun, Washington's War, Churchill, Pericles, and Fort Sumter. We'll start this interview with a question about what he's working on now that he's a full-time game designer again. Many people know uh, I'm sort of now back to being a full-time game designer, which is kind of uh, really fun. Uh, you know, it's uh, I wake up every morning and I just keep thinking like, okay, which game am I working on today? Which is just, quite frankly, is for me is heaven. Uh, you know, I eat breakfast and I start working. And um, so, what am I working on now? So, let me tell you what I'm just completing now, and I'll move into the newer stuff. So, uh, Roger McGowan, my good friend. Uh, called me and he said that he had this friend and you know he, he didn't have a beginner war game that you know of of note and he said would I be interested in doing it for C3I magazine of course I said yes I always say yes so I, I said yes and he said well what would you do it on and I said oh my goodness and so I was I don't know what it was but of all the things I've always wanted to do that I've never done was I never did a game on Gettysburg and I I as I told you I was on the board of directors of the Gettysburg Foundation at I've, I've built, I've actually repaired fences on the battlefield. I mean, I've been there. You've a been lot. there a hundred times. Yeah. Literally, uh, you know, if not a hundred times, it's real close. close. It's real close. I mean, in a literal sense. Uh, I, in fact, I even uh, helped put in the um, the geothermal thing that pays for most of the electricity for the uh, uh, for the for the uh, museum, which we opened. Anyway, all that aside. Uh, so I said I'm going to do Gettysburg. So, and it was the idea was it was supposed to be like the old um, SPI Napoleon at Waterloo giveaway, you know. So the, you know, it's, and that was by the way an amazing game. I mean, a lot of people just it was just a great game. And then 
the cost of manufacturing was too much for a giveaway, and that's when we got down to Strike Force One, which is you know, admittedly a one one pass through experience that you wouldn't want to play again. So I started designing this Gettysburg game, and then then of course you know, uh, professional pride comes into it. I'm going like, oh, God, I mean, if I just do like a, you know, move, combat, Gettysburg game, it'll be very unmemorable, and it'll be probably be the only Gettysburg game I ever do, and that would really not be what I would, that won't make me happy. So then I started really thinking, and so I effectively came up with what I call my equivalent of a Disney movie. It's a game, you, you take your kids to a Disney movie because they like the cartoon and they understand it, but the, in, the cartoon's interesting enough that the adult isn't bored sitting there I've seen Little Mermaid eight times, literally. My daughter, my wife's seen it 12, but, you know, she loved that movie. You know, so when you go to, like, Little Mermaid, you can still hang in there because it's a good movie. And so I tried to design a good, simple game. And what I'm really heartened by is it's not yet been tested by novices, but the the hardcore gamers like it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's got very short rules. I mean, in typing, it has, you know, six pages of rules typed which will which is like four pages of rules with illustrations in a magazine so that's pretty short and i think it kind of captures you know i call it uh, you know you know history you know distilled to its, its essence you know it's like how do you get it down to the minimalist thing so i've looked at this battle enough that i feel like i've gotten there so that's done and you know we're now roger we're into like you know final production and all that so that game is finished then um uh, interesting story. There's a, a very famous game shop in the comp- uh, New York City called the Complete Strategist, and I go in there one day and I see this guy uh, with a Pericles. You know, I, I don't go there often, but I was in the store and this guy's you know buy a Pericles, and I go, hey, you know, thanks for buying the game. And I look up and I realize it's Jeff Engelstein, <laughs> uh, but just total random event. So we start, to, you know, he's a nice guy, really nice guy, and we start talking. And he says, I see you're doing a Versailles game, you know, for the Great Statesman series. I said, yeah, it's, you know, that's kind of the next one up. He goes, well, I'm doing one also. Why don't we do it together? So that's what happened. I mean, literally, that's the happenstance of what created Versailles 1919. And so he and I, in fact, it's, you know, we'll, uh, I'll be showing it to you. It's sitting over on a table. You know, people can't see where we're sitting, but it's on the table in that white box over there uh, between Pericles and Fort Sumter. It doesn't have, have a uh, cover, obviously. In fact, the, uh, that white box that you're taking a picture of is the, when they do a game in uh, China and they get all the components, they do a white copy, you know, like, like the white album. So it had a, a map board and all the cards that were in Pericles were in the box showing that it would fit, you know, with the exact you know, materials you're going to make it of. So I had to approve all that and I got to keep this good. So I now use that three-inch box as a game. It's great. I mean, it's just... And uh, I have a mounted map board that's blank. I keep uh, pasting uh, sheets of the new maps on top of. I was going to say a marker could go a long way toward labeling it. Yeah. yeah so uh, yeah, exactly what I do. You'll see when I pull it out that it's literally just uh, like just looks like your uh, the your South China Sea map over there where you printed it out on two sheets. Right. I just take the sheets and I paste them onto the eight panels and. You know, it's it's not perfect, but it's it's mounted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so uh, we're doing Versailles 1919, and then. Uh, I did this self-published this game called it was like, it was really like a kids game called Ribbit, and yeah, we sold about a hundred of them. Uh, my Carol and I it was just kind of when I you know left the corporate life, it was just something fun for Carol and I to do together. And 
you know, it was going along, but you know, it fell off. But it had really good reviews, uh, and but you know, selling it through um, Amazon, you know, it's um, in that marketplace. It's like you know, not even a pinhead within this ocean of stuff. And then I was talking to uh, uh, Tom and Mary Russell from Hollenspiel, and they were like, they were doing this. Um, I guess Ty Bomba did some kind of zoom and boom game or boom and zoom. I remember. It. I've heard about it. Yeah, but oh, yeah. Uh, but they were interested in getting another abstract game. So I I said, would you be, be interested? And we very quickly came to an agreement. And then they got this artist who took my, you know, I'm very graphically challenged. I had a nice board. It was functionally really good. In fact, Mark Simonich liked the design of it. So I feel like, you know, wow, if Mark Simonich says this doesn't look bad, I'm feeling pretty good. He's, he's a pro. But yeah. they gave this thing to this artist, and he reimagined it as a kid's game where it's it looks like a boat in the dock with swamp, and you go up a tree for the score. I mean, it's amazing looking. So it's going to come out in August, So, but I'm that's all – in their hands now and then i, I interviewed uh, tom and mary at uh Consim world have you published they, that one yet i haven't yet oh i'm looking I, forward I, to it I'll, i, I think... made f- i interviewed five people there so i have a ton of material now i just need to spend yeah, in fact, time this is going to probably so this is uh this is july 5th right, <laughs> right. after the fourth and we're in uh, i guess we're somewhere between san diego and la i don't right. know where the hell i am right uh wherever where are we we're, well well i don't know we're at brookhurst Har- hobbies Brookhurst Hobbies, yeah. In Orange County. And these guys who never knew us just let us have this room. So right, very nice right, of these guys. So, right. by the way, everybody, come to Brookhurst Hobbies. It's the most amazing hobby store I've ever seen it was in 30 years. Yeah. It's an extraordinary store. So, anyway. Uh, with GMT games, with MMP games, with. Yeah, and all- also every model and Warhammer thing and book. And, I mean, it is all the scale of this place. Yeah. It's an incredible place. So, I'll have to come figure out how to get back down here to play games. But, um, Anyway, uh, I, I digress. So, um, so you, you, you just you just talked through uh, Gettysburg. You just talked through yeah, Ra- so, Rabbit. So Gene, so Gene um, Billingsley, who's uh, you know the head of GMT Games, uh, we were talking, and he says, "What do you think about re um, redoing your old Peloponnesian War game from the '90s uh, that you did? That was a solitaire game." I said. Yeah, I mean, it's, I never thought about republishing it, but sure. So we put it on the P500, and it zoomed right through in, like, days. So now I'm doing that. And so that since I have to go back from the Civil War and, you know, World War One back to the Peloponnesian again after Pericles, I I called up Berg, and we're going to do – it won't be called, but we're going to do Hoplite 2, which will be the next oh, wow. volume in the Great Battles of History series. Because I'm, if I'm always – if I were going to get all the books back out again and get all the data <laughs> – and get Carol spun up. Uh, my wife, by the way, has been helping me on, you know, research for the Peloponnesian War. Wow. I mean, of all things. I mean, she's an art history major, and I get her to do this, and she looks at me and goes, I, I said, you know, you're going to become a world expert on Peloponnesian War. It's something you never thought that was going to happen <laughs> when you got out of college. You but, are very lucky. You no, know, she's awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 40 years married is coming in April. So, oh, um, congrats. So, anyway, um, so we're going back, and so what we're going to do is it's going to be a – War Galley slash Great Battles of History volume, we're going to do every battle from the Peloponnesian War, land and sea. It'll have a couple of, it's going to be a monster package. I mean, it's going to have everything. And then we'll, and as a bonus, we'll throw back in from Hoplite 1 Delium, which is one of the only battles we did from the Peloponnesian. From War Galley, we'll put in Organusa, which is the one, the big naval battle down in the Turkish coast that was a big one. So we'll put those back in there and we're going to do them all. So it's going to have, it's going to have at least 
a dozen to 15 land battles and about the same number of naval battles. And some of these are very small, so it's going to be very, you're going to be able to go for, the, I'll have a couple of campaign, like Syracuse and Sphacteria and a couple of big campaign things in there. So I got Burgle activated to do that again. And so, and I really like the way Hoplite limb system works. It's very solitaire. You know, with the GBOH series has moved away from the original Alexander system on the activations to this limb system. And I got to be honest, the, the solitaire advantage of that really gives it, you know, really helps. So we're going to stick with that. And it'll just be Hoplite 2. But Berg wants to call it Ares. I said, yeah, he does all the, Berg does all the naming stuff. So when she explain the difference? Uh, so in Great Battles of History, so here's the thing, uh, and I, it's one of these things that either you get it or if you're a very linear thinker, you'll never get it. Um, in a game, the way you show who has the initiative is the guy who goes second, not the guy who goes first. Because it's more valuable to react, keep your options. Or to run or to be driving the action when you want it to be. And so what I came up with when I did um, Great Battles of History is you start with the worst rated leader going up to the best rated leader. But any higher rated leader can jump in to the, to the conga line of going next by rolling dice. So, you know, if you're fighting, um, you know, Hannibal versus the Romans, you know, you got a bunch of, you know, you know run-of-the-mill tribunes running their, their legion and then if Hannibal now, if they open a flank up with some move, now all of a sudden Hannibal can jump in and smite them with cavalry or something, whatever, you know, or smash into them by gaining control of the momentum. So that's how that system works. So, it's, so yes, Hannibal's not going first because he's getting to react into your mistakes, which is his advantage. It's a superpower, right? So you can get like, and so in, in all these battles and how they come out, it naturally happens without special rules. Whereas you do it the other way, you got to have special rules to allow that to happen. So, again, if you get, if you understand what's really happening, uh, you know, that's what's going on. Uh, going last is, in fact, the person with the initiative. Uh, so we're going to do all that in Great Battles, and so I'll be doing those two kind of Peloponnesian, I think of it like in periods, I'll be doing a Peloponnesian package there. And then this Gettysburg game, uh, which will only be available in C3I, and I think Roger has told me there's going to be a, like a, a separate box deluxe edition, you know, might even have a mounted map, by the way, which will be different for him. Um, so go back to old SPI, where I grew up in back in the 70s. And one of the really cool things that we used to do, I think it was a Redmond idea, by the way, I think Redmond came up with this, is we would do, like, think of, like, the uh, Great Art of uh, Siege Quad, right? There's four sieges. But we put Constantinople in the magazine. So you get in the magazine, S&T, Strategy and Tactics magazine, you'd get this game of Constantinople that Berg did, and then there would be four more games following that, that system, which didn't quite work in that particular case, but in other, like in the blue and gray, it did. And so I'm going to do a series of three American Civil War quad games. So obviously the quad, they'll each come with four battles. And I'm trying to figure out how to cut it by either by year or by theater. I haven't figured that out yet, but... The 11 by 17 map, hard mounted, of course, um, with uh, very low counter density. You'll see when we play Gettysburg later in the in your uh, podcast. You know we're going to be talking about you know under 20 counters in many cases, or right around you know, uh, and it's using the Gettysburg system. And so you'll so you'll have this sort of fast playing Civil War battles. And of course, what so people what battles are you going to do? Well, 
okay, Antietam, Shiloh, Chickamauga, you know, you, you can name, you know, and I did, I kind of looked up and came up with a list, so I easily have 12 good ones, you know. After that, they start getting, there's a lot of battles, but there's the, the 12 famous ones will be covered in three, four, if, if people like it. If they don't, you know, we'll stop doing it, but that'll be uh, coming down the road. Um, I interviewed Brian Train when oh, I was at I love uh, Constant World, and uh, I, I love me some Brian Train. Uh, he's, he's a brilliant guy, but, but he's dry and funny. Yeah, he's a good guy. And I, it just keeps me laughing. I love him. But he, had, uh, he brought a couple of quad game concepts with him uh, to Constant World to show off. One was an urban combat quad, right? So it's interesting to hear people talking about quad games again. Well, you know what it was? When I was at SPI, um, they came up with the quad game system. I forget who did it, um, but it, the idea was it was supposed to be, you know, real back-to-basics gaming again. And it was the only ones we could ever run tournaments on, you know. So, um, you know, so uh, you know, a, a funny story. Uh, I go to my – I guess it was the, the third Origins where SPI ran it. And so I'm there, and I was actually head of security and some good stories around that. But, <laughs> but I had some time off, and so I played in the blue and gray uh, quad tournament. And in the first round, you know, imagine what you would see in a tournament at, a, at, an, at an Origins, right? So, you know, guys that look like you and me, you know, uh, unlike you, in my case, not good looking, you know, kind of <laughs> dorky looking and all that stuff. And, and you know... In many cases, a little bit, maybe a little bit, a few extra pounds, you know, not the athletic build types. And I sit down for my first round, and I'm sitting next, I'm sitting across from a, a stunning uh, woman, sweet as heck. She's on her honeymoon, and her husband, she let her, you know, this is the only time she, this is ever going to happen at a honeymoon, right? She, she's, he, her husband wanted to go to Origins on his honeymoon, okay? Uh, and she had nothing to do, so he said, why don't you go in this tournament? So in the first round, I'm, and she doesn't even know how to play blue and gray quad, so... I end up teaching her how to play the game, you know, forgetting, forgetting about, I actually said to her, when I, I'll say you won, you can play another. She goes, no, 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 I just want to play one game. So we, we played it. I showed her how to play. I think it was Chickamauga. You know, end of story. And I don't see her again. Now fast forward, I'm at Victory Games, so this is now 15 years later. And I'm at a convention, at the, and, and she walks up. And she says, hi, Mark. I said, I don't forget her name now, but I think it was Debbie. But I said, hey, how you doing, Debbie? And her husband's going, how do you know Mark Herman? <laughs> and he's starting to think, you know. I said, oh, hi, nice to meet you. You know, when you, on your honeymoon, I was hanging out with your wife. That didn't quite go over the way. It sounds a lot worse. Than it, it doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound good. Yeah. But I, <laughs> That's great. She was, she was very, very nice. Uh, but that was, anyway, so the Blue and Gray Quad was meant to be a tournament game. So my idea is to bring that back. And you can play with your kids or you can, you would, and, what I've been really interested in is that the hardcore gamers seem to really like the game. You know, people don't seem to have... I've learned something from Fort Sumter, by the way, which obviously came out recently. In fact, I think people are still getting their copies. I right. See people are still posting, hey, look what just showed up in the mail, mostly in Europe now, I think. Right. But it's a 20-minute game, and there is a quality to time that I had not... Un- I mean, I've done 90-minute games. You know, Washington's War is a 90-minute game. Um, any scenario, a lot of scenarios in Pericles are under an hour, you know, but people see a big game, they don't think about it, it's got, they only think about the big scenario, and it's a long game to play, not the fact that it's got tons of short stuff to play, but that's, you know, what are you going to do? That's a branding thing, but people, in fact, this one guy, 
does a, a review of, uh, I think it's the only one that did a review on Fort Sumter, and he goes, I give it a 10, but I'm taking off one point for the rules. Kai Jensen did an amazing job on the rules, so I'm not sure what the issue with the rules were. Right. Nobody's given me, I haven't had almost no rules questions, so she did an amazing job on the rules. So, But he, he's an editor, so he felt like it wasn't up to his standards. And he took off one point on the rating because his wife had trouble understanding the color behind, like, whose event it was, which is the For the People system, which we've been using for, you know, uh, since 1998. Right. So, okay. So he gave it an eight based on that. But the first paragraph says how much he loves it, and then it's like the rest of it, like three paragraphs of like, uh, you know, this stuff. So then people start responding to him going like, did you like the game? And then finally, he goes, yeah, I, I should have probably said that more than what the stuff I didn't like. That's fine. You know, but then... So after I, this goes on a while, I finally just I decided to write. I said, hey, by the way, and he says he's 63 like me and all this stuff. So I said, hey, one grognor to another, how many times have you played Fort Sumter? And he writes back, oh, I've played it 36 times. <laughs> this is online, so you can, there, right. this is not fake news. You can go <laughs> see it online. And I go, so I said to him, so what was the last time you played a game 36 times? And he goes, uh, I think Carcassonne Digital. That's great. So I'm going like, dude. It's a good sign. I mean, it's like, it's okay, I'll take your sign. eight. If that's the yeah. circumstance of your eight, I'll, I'll take right. it. Right. But you're talking about how complex, how hard it was to design a simple game, well, right? So, the, so you yeah. lay the standard of simple, simple to teach, right? Quick to teach, which we, which even though we have short scenarios of bigger games, not necessarily easy to teach. Mm-hmm. So, so when you lay those standards on, on your, when you force those on yourself to design a game, I've found that it's much harder well, big I, I think what – so what I did with Gettysburg, let's just use that as an example, sure. right? So what are the – in a hex encounter war game, what are the two things – there are three things that take up your time, right? There's the sequence of play, you know, like what, what happens in what order, so you've got you know, you procedures, um, moving around the board, right? And combat. That's pretty much the whole game, right? And mm-hmm. you give up victory points for killing stuff. But those are the games. So the first thing I did was I said, I'm going to create a scale. And by the way, if you remember, and I know you've been to Gettysburg many times, even at, if you pick the right, if you take a time scale of half a day, so you've got to pick a time scale, a map scale, and a unit scale so that every hex is one movement point. So now I don't have a train effects like, oh, this is two, this is one, this is three. On Wednesdays, i crossing the river. You get rid of all that stuff. So you, got, you can move four spaces, you move four spaces, right? You move right. one space, you move one space. You don't have to count anything. So, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, and I've been playing, by the way, I, I hardly in, endorse uh, this game uh, by Herman Lutman called uh, Long Street Attacks. Great fun, you know, uh, brigade-level uh, tactical game of Gettysburg, a part of the Battle of Gettysburg. It just covers Longstreet's attack on the second day on the, you know, from about 4 o'clock. It runs from like 4 o'clock in the afternoon to 7 o'clock at night kind of scenario. 14 turns is the campaign. Really nice system. It's, I think, the third of his series. But the point of that is, is Rick Barber did the maps, and it's like you can see where every rock and tree is on the battlefield. If you know Rick right. Barber, he right. used to live there. I mean, I, he's even taken, I've gone around with him and my son. I mean, he knows where every rock is. Right. He's labeled them, you know. He all hand-drawn. All hand-drawn and all this stuff. And every time I want to do something in the game, again, as an old-time gamer, I love this. It's like, okay, do I have a line of sight from here across these trees and woods and orchards and runs and the trains going up and down? Can I see that guy is part of the game. That's part of the fun of, you know, getting better positions and all that stuff. 
But when you're doing a simple game, you don't want to deal with that. So there's two kinds of terrain. There's open and there's defensible, which is everything else. And you can see in, in the map, by the way, people can't see, is there's it, uh, Charlie Kibler, who did the map, did it as a sepia print uh, map. And it's, you know, it's got this like light uh, brownish tone, if you remember what sepia looks like, uh, for the clear terrain. And the defensible terrain is just a darker brown. So it is absolutely clear. I think you would attest that you can tell which is open and which is defensible. It, it, very clear and and but beautiful, right? Yeah, it's well, it's yeah. it's it's supposed to be clear and and also because of the constant gray tone, the blue and the gray counters pop on it, right? Because the color now pops out of it, so it's very it's, it's visually very nice looking. Uh, you know, between Rod, you know, you can't go wrong when you have uh, Roger McGowan and Charlie Kibler doing your you know doing no, your graphics. They, there's no there's no bad story there. It's yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. So. So now I've gotten rid of the whole, how do I move, how do I do terrain thing, right? Got it. You know, I want to be on darker spaces to be better defensively. Everything's one. And then you have roads, and that just makes me go faster. Okay, so that's it. That was all the terrain. I just taught you the terrain. Now, combat is if you have pieces of equivalent size, then the force ratio is always one-to-one. And so you get rid of all, and so I just give a benefit. If you have a, like a lot of guys around, you get a die roll modifier. And, you know, there's terrain. And then there's unit quality is like there's a, either has no stars, one star, or two stars. It gives you a, a plus on the die. And lastly is this little cool little artillery system I came up with, which gives it a little bit of, you know, a little bit of jazz and a little bit of uncertainty to the thing. And you roll dice, differential dice. The CRT is... If you're the same value, it's a stalemate. If I beat you by one or two on the dice with all the modifiers, you retreat. If I beat you by three or four, you're blown. You go out of the game for about a day. And if I get a five plus, you're dead. I just told you. So now I've taught you the whole game. That's great. And so to do a simple game, you've got to boil it down literally to its essence of what do you want to accomplish. But what I'm really trying to accomplish is at a more complex level is it's the flow of running a battle as Lee or Mead. In other words, I've got, you know, I've got these many chits to throw in where I want to and try to outmaneuver you. And to keep it honest, I have like a, uh, it's not a headquarters unit. It's like if you imagine you had a map and Lee drew a circle on the map, say that's my center of gravity. It's so Lee is not the piece, it's not me, but it's like sort of the center of gravity of the action that turn. You can't get beyond the HQ range, this piece, this marker's range, so you can't do strange stuff. You know, you can't go, you know, somebody who slips around the side of the map and runs around the corners and does weird stuff like that. That can't happen. And, but, but the really thing that makes it an interesting game now, to me, and why I think gamers like it is, the thing that, if you read about a Civil War battle, the timing of it is, guys come marching onto the battlefield in a march formation. And as they get near each other, they got to slow down, they, they, they shake out, you know, into line, and all this stuff happens. We understand that choreography. So in the game, what happens is every piece has a traditional zone of control that's locking. But you also have, like, almost from Empire of the Sun, this zone of influence where the skirmishers are out, right? And so when any time a guy in march formation enters your zone of influence, they stop, and they have to go from their four-point side to their one-point side. So now all of a sudden, the time scale of the game compresses as the pieces get near each other without any real rule. I just told you the rule. And if I get next to you, we're stuck, and then combats. And then, by the way, pieces can move multiple times. You, pieces can attack and be attacked multiple times. It just alternates back and forth. So there's this kind of choreography. 
But what keeps it all under control is the HQ from running around weirdly. And when you pass, I have to roll a die and only get some more, more, more moves. So it limits all that. And there's some reasons, by the way, for the Union to try to end pass early so that the Confederates don't have fully developed their plan. So you can actually end up naturally getting Longstreet not being able to attack on the morning of the second day. He has to attack on the afternoon of the second day without any special rules. That simple mechanic. And you can fight battles until you're knocked away. You can fight 100 battles with a guy. That never happens, you know. Because the main thing is, and again, the only real thing I had to do any deep research in is you have ammunition. Artillery is ubiquitous. The uh, Confederates get 11 shots. The Union gets 14. That is based on actual ammunition. I actually went down and read... um, uh, Hunt, General Hunt was, and, and Lieutenant Colonel Alexander were the artillery commanders for the two sides. Well, Lieutenant Alexander sort of a quasi-head of artillery. They didn't really have one, but Hunt was for the Union, and they talk about how much ammunition they expended. So I know that 11 to 14 ratio is correct from a historical perspective. And every time you get into a battle, you have this little marker where, you know, again, a little bit of the bluff, you either decide to throw your artillery in or not, and then we reveal, and if, I'm, if we're both, if one guy throws an artillery, gets a plus two to his die roll. If we both throw an artillery, we roll the dice. And high die roll gets the plus two. So there's a little bit of that. But then people say, well, that's very luck-ridden. Well, the answer is, you have to think about the Civil War, is that if you want to attack a position, it's not one attack, it's, it's like at least two, like two wave attacks to take a position. So probabilistically, if I have to roll artillery twice, I should hit it on one of them. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I built this thing around the idea that three pieces are attacking one in defensible terrain. That model, you can reproduce the, um, the various uh, Lee's oblique attack was one of his favorite tactics. You can reproduce that without any rules just based right. on this idea that. And as you start running down on artillery ammunition, you know, there are hard choices come in. You know, can I, I got Hood. He's a plus two by himself because he's a really good division. That cancels out the plus two for defensible terrain. If he throws an artillery, he's going to get a plus two. But if I throw in as the Confederates another artillery, I'm running low. Maybe I can try to get away with it. You know, you get into this whole right. game. Yeah. And, oh, and, of course, there has to be. If we both, anytime anybody rolls a six in artillery, exploding caissons. <laughs> <laughs> you lose an artillery point. The other guy loses an artillery point. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so yeah. That's, that way you can't totally predict the number of shots. Right. That was the one. Yeah, you got to have a little bit of juice in it. But that, sure. Anyway, so I, I don't know if that seemed like a long teach. No, but no, I, no, it's great. Look, it didn't. It didn't. You got to boil it all down. Right. So, so let, me, let me take you off yeah. a, a little yeah. uh, rabbit hole. The, you mentioned randomness, mm-hmm. right, and complaints about randomness, which, which I, don't, I don't mind randomness, right? I almost expected in this sort of situation things didn't always come out as you expected or wanted to. But in, in some of your other games, I think specifically about Churchill, you give players the ability to roll dice, but then you also give them the ability to modify the roll. Yeah, of course. Right? So which, which I think is interesting. So do you have a philosophy on randomness in I dice? do. So, so the question is, let's talk about randomness. So if, if an entire game comes down to one uh, there was a game that I um, wanted to like, uh, SPI did a game called Plot to Assassinate Hitler. Right. It's actually a brilliant design. But ultimately, when you get to the, the, the final end game, you know, try to Valkyrie, you know, part of the game, there's one die roll. 
I mean, you know, that first die roll, if you, you set it all up, you get the maximum you know, modifiers, and if that die roll goes right, you could get to shoot Hitler in the head, which, of course, is a great, great objective for any game sure. in my mind. <laughs> but if you blow that die roll, you're done. So you've played this entire game, and this one die roll does it all. Ultimately, I mean, there's a couple of die rolls, but there's one. If you blow that first die roll, you're pretty much done. I played the game right. enough times to know that. That is randomness at its worst. Now, if you play like uh, we were talking about, La Bataille de la Moscova, the game I played at the first Origins when I was not even a game designer, met Richard Berg and all that stuff. Um, I've told that story before, but there you're going to roll the dice so many damn times, it doesn't matter. Right. Randomness, you know, unless the universe hates you, eventually. And I was playing this long street attacks, right? right? So going back to my artillery die roll in Gettysburg, right? If you're in that game, uh, long street attacks. So this is very tactical, battery, right? If I shake a 66, which is, you know, the colored, the, the colored, you know, you're using the dice as a 10s and a 1s dice, so you can get 11 to 66 results. Uh, if you roll a 66, it doesn't matter what you did right or wrong, you're going to hurt somebody. If you roll an 11, it doesn't matter what you did right or wrong, you're going to miss. And then there's everything in between, right? right? So when you understand that, ultimately a, a duel between guns is going to come out, somebody's going to come out ahead on that thing just based on even it's four or five die rolls. So by compressing it into one die roll, assuming that you have to do it twice, it's the same basic effect mathematically. You, know, you get pretty close. Right? Now, in, but I can't roll. So I, I, in my grave, I wanted to say the dice love no one. That's my... <laughs> uh, and so the dice don't like anybody. You know, in fact, my good friend David Doctor says, it's, oh, we're going Vegas, he calls it. And anytime you, you need that one die, you, I have to roll a one or I'm losing the game. Do I roll like you've right. screwed up so badly and then you save yourself? Right. The, was that brilliant strategy? No, you got lucky. Uh, you know, it's the Burnside, you know, on a one has to in, intercept the Army of Northern Virginia and for the people or it's a disaster and he does it. You know, right. whoo-hoo, you know, but that wasn't where the odds were going, right? So, right. you know, you're playing the odds is really how I look at it. And since I can't roll dice, so in Empire of the Sun, the way I designed it is when you invade an island, you will know that you're going to take the island if you do it right. You know, if I send a certain amount of guys, the island's going to fall. But I don't know the casualties. That's the dice roll. So I can take randomness and make it a variable on the casualty side, not on the success-failure side. In Churchill, which you were bringing up, you have choices which people usually don't, you know, so you're going to take these uh, offensive support marks and put them in, you know, supporting fronts. And then there's bad guys, you know, there's Germans and Japanese reserves trying to, you know, and each Japanese reserve knocks out one offensive support marker. So early in the game, the Soviets are, until D-Day happens, the Soviets got five German reserves sitting in front of them. If they can, if they can get uh, five offensive support markers, they got a 20% chance of advancing. Not very good. Right, but if you pile enough stuff in there and you get to a ten, you're going to advance no matter what happens. Right. So in in the course of the game, people will be given choices. I can either overly support this front or moderately support two fronts. Now, think of it from a success failure, not from a math point of view. Is that if I over support one front, it's automatic. I'm guaranteed a fifty percent success rate. If I spread it around, which most people do, I have a chance of 0% rate of success or 100%. But either way, 
what's the better choice? So when people say the dice kill me, the answer is no. You chose to let the dice kill you. But because yeah. you're not playing the numbers the way that they're designed, you can get around it if you think it through. Right. So that's kind of rain in this that I don't mind either. See, right. So you're going to win. It's a success-failure, not a how-much-do-you-lose thing. That's how I kind of think about randomness in a general sense. Now, when you do a card deck, which, you know, I'm sort of known for that, uh, you have to know the N choose K, you know, you know uh, N factorial over uh, K factorial times N minus K factorial equation, and you can build a deck very accurately about what's going to happen mathematically. And when people tell me, I played the game and this happened, and I'll say, okay, that is a one in three million chance... Um, I ran a Monte Carlo simulation for Fort Sumter. Out of 100,000 card draws for a game, there were five hands out of 100,000 that could skew the game. Mm. I think at that point I'm going, okay, that's good enough. That's okay. That's yeah. okay. Yeah. You know, and it, you say, well, it happened to me. Okay. So unless you live another million years, it won't happen again. <laughs> <laughs> the good news is, yeah. yeah this, was like, once, this was a one-off right, event. Lightning isn't going to hit you twice. It could, but, you know. Right. But, you know, they're obviously they're independent probabilities, but the answer is not right, likely to right. happen. So that's how I handle randomness. Yeah. The, you know, the other way to think about randomness, in my mind, is I, I'm a huge college football fan, and we sit around <laughs> during college football season saying, a bad call or one play meant this to me, right, and we lost or whatever. You certainly don't brag on it if you win, but you certainly complain if you lose. But my response is always, why did you let it come down to that? Right. Yeah. I mean, and the, and the same is true for dice rolls. Yeah. If a game comes down to a dice roll, why did you let it come down to that? Well, you know, the great example is Churchill, and you know, so there was this there's this guy. I won't even, I don't want to mention names, but there's a guy who personally wrote more words against Churchill than the other like 1,500 people combined. Right. And, and I'm happy with the way it came out. Uh, so, and his point was, you know, besides, you know whatever he had with that many words he said a lot of things but the main thing he kept saying is my group is a hardcore gaming group and we the war never you know the war never ends successfully and the game always comes down to a die roll so right. i always come back and say look the die if you go for the break the alliance strategy right the condition three and you couldn't figure out how to win by more than 13 points or more your strategy failed. You made a bad choice. Right. And, and if your group keeps having the same bad choice over and over right. again, it's maybe not the game is the problem. Right. You're, yeah. having, you're not exploring the other possibilities because you keep getting to the same place. You keep failing in your strategy, and you're still telling me that if you're not going to play – you know, one of the problems I have both in games and politics, if you're not going to vote or play a game to your own self-interest, what's the point? Right. Why would you do it? Right. Yeah, agreed. And, and you know, sometimes groupthink affects people. Right? Yeah. I see that with liberty or death. But at the same time, uh, I, I love Churchill, but I only play it with people that, that have some experience in it. Right. Unfortunately, because I'll let you train the new people. I'll play the ones with experience because because they have to understand that concept. Right. They I mean, it, it's a sophisticated view. I think it's brilliant, but it's a sophisticated view to know I want to win, but I don't want to win by too much because I don't want to take the chance. So if you end up taking the chance, that's your mistake. Yeah. And, and also it was the biggest. So the biggest let's talk about design challenges. So any game with an even number of players or one is not a problem per se for balancing. Because if I got one-on-one, -on -one, obviously that's simple. 
one against me, well, that doesn't matter. Right. Uh, two on two naturally falls into team. But the problem with a three-player game or even a five-player game, anything with an odd number is what ha- – well, a five-player game is not so bad because it's three on two, but there's not four on one usually. But two on one can be a problem. And so the challenge with Churchill was how to make it so that on a regular basis the two, in, the two on one changes. Now, what I have found is that people who don't know anything about the history play it better than people who know the history. Because people have this view that Roosevelt and Churchill were like, you know, kissing cousin, best buddies, you know, wouldn't do anything to hurt each other kind of guys. And that is just not the act. Yes, there are pictures of them smiling, and there's a lot of, you know, uh, you know military, uh, naval guy to naval guy letters and all this love and affection kind of stuff. But the answer is, is they disagreed fundamentally on big agenda items. And, and Roosevelt was a tough politician. He threw Churchill over to get closer to Stalin many times, and vice versa, by the way. So what ends up happening in Churchill, and it's by design, is if the Americans stick with the British against the Soviets, Churchill wins the game. If only the Americans can control the British, and if the Americans don't understand that, the British are going to win the game because they're going to play, because it's designed that the British way to winning the game is the political game. That's their superpower. The U.S. can win the game as a balanced political military, because they got the Pacific. You see, they got all those points in the Pacific to pick up, and as long as they play that correctly, the Soviets have to uh, get to Germany. And if the Americans let the British block up the Soviets, then um, the Soviets are going to come in last, and the Americans are always going to come in second, and Churchill's going to win the game. Right. That's that's how it's designed. Right. And I find that, again, the Americans need to understand. The, the Americans have to play to their self-interest. Don't let the British win the game. If you're going to let the British win the game, then why are you guys playing? Right. You know, why don't you play the Soviets then? You know, don't play the Americans. <laughs> you're going to do that. So it's an interesting conundrum. Uh, but I play this. I always play the Soviets when I play Churchill. I, in fact, I because I always know that if I'm not playing the Soviets, they'll get hammered without knowing what to do. Right. And if you have an experienced player, it'd be okay. But right. there is math to this. Yeah, it's interesting. And in game theory, we we study the three man problem, right? And 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 frankly, if you assume that each player will make a series of rational decisions through the game, the three player problem isn't an issue. It's when two players decide that that's what they're going to do, regardless of advantage. Because what you should see in a three player, right, is that the two player move against the third, and then the third player picks the the, the weaker of the two and says, "You're going to lose." Yeah. But you and I together can change it. Right. And I think in a three-player game that was abstract, that would work. But somehow the history here is really powerful. Right. And so, but, you know, but the good news is it seems that, well, as you know, I just saw, I was shocked. I got a, a note from Tony Curtis, by the way, is the production manager for GMT Games. Most people don't know who Tony is, but right. you'll see him at conventions. But he's a, he was, by the way, was one of my main play testers at Victory Games. Oh, is that right? I've known Tony forever. He's an awesome guy. He's great. He's very good. And, uh, and Tony sent me a note. It says Churchill sold out again. So I'm very happy. So I think the game is starting to hit a tipping point. I'm seeing it play to conventions regularly right. now, which is what I always hope for. So right. I think it's got uh, legs, right. which I'm I happy about. Agreed. And I think it hits that sweet spot, too, where it's almost cooperative. Yeah, almost. Right? Almost almost cooperative. But uh, at the same time, it's simple. And, and, you know, 
the innovation that I love is the simplification of World War II. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing how simple World War II is portrayed there. So I think people that don't necessarily like the conflict aspect yeah. can play through it. Uh, well, but but again, the game wasn't about the war. It was about running, winning a piece. Exactly. Which is the war is sort of a sidebar to the winning the peace piece. Exactly. But, you know, it, it, what's interesting also is that, uh, you know, you've got – it's amazing how little history – Dunnigan used to say to me that, uh, well, said to all of us, but he, I used to talk to him a lot. I still do. I just had lunch with him and Al Nofi just uh, about a, a month ago. Well, I guess I've been here a while, so maybe it's two months ago now. I've been in California a while. Uh, there's, we have gamer myths. There are myths in games, often based on the first game you played on that topic. It became, like, so real to you that – and. Jim would say that a lot of myths, most, a lot of gamer myths are based on the games or a very simplistic view of history, but the reality is quite more interesting. And I think you found out when you did Liberty or Death, uh, there's a lot of detail here. You know, when I, my revelation that it was really an insurgency war when I was doing uh, the original We the People, it's like, this is not what I learned in high school. Right. Uh, I didn't learn this even in college. You know, this, well, I didn't take much uh, American history in college, but it, my high school education would have told me that, hey, you know, it's all about Yorktown and, you know, the, you know the, the big battles and all that stuff. And it's not what the war is about. And until I read about Simcoe and read his you know, memoirs and all that stuff, I said, whoa, there's a different history here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's also interesting, by the way, I, I, I saw a comment the other day. Um, it comes down to what's more famous, right? So the most famous card-driven game is clearly Twilight Struggle by, uh, you know, 100 furlongs over anything else. And when people see the card-driven game mechanic, which was named by Gene Billingsley, by the way. I, I'm not clever like that. That's a Gene, you know, the lunchtime game. Thing. I don't think that way. It's not, he's a branding. He's, that's why he's good at what he does. He's, he knows how to really understand how to shape that branding thing, uh, uh, which apparently could get you uh, elected president. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, but uh, Gene came up with the card-driven game, but the part that people miss is that the card-driven game system is actually based on three pieces, and one of them is the cards, clearly, and the, you know, the, the operations point piece. Second thing is the events, but the third thing is the area control. We the People is an area control game. Twilight Struggle is an area control game. Because, but because you call it a card-driven game, you ignore the, the, that a card-driven game is an area control game. Not, but there were area control games that just didn't have cards in it. I mean, it's like that's the big, that's the big right. I think that's the bigger angle. And so Fort right. Sumter, people go, oh, this is an area control game like Twilight Struggle. Yes, <laughs> that is correct. You know, it right. is. But, but that's what We the People is. It's an area control game. You know, you get, in, instead of like Europe, you have, um, you know, spaces in a colony. And you control the colony. And that gives you the militia. I mean, you get leverage out of all of that. Right. Um, you know, so area control is the core of the card-driven game system from its inception. And the thing that really upsets me is when I did uh, We the People, Mark Simonich and I went through this lengthy email exchange about trying to understand the, the fundamentals of what is it. You know, after it was done, I said, what the hell happened? And so he and I, and then he did um, Hannibal or he was doing Hannibal. And so we started a exchange of emails. We actually try, we distilled down what we thought was the essence of the system and what it really meant, which is embedded in my DNA now. We don't have a copy of those emails. I, I would, I would I, maybe I put it in my save, I have to go look at my save mail and see if I got lucky. It's like the Federalist Papers. Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, I don't think that, that you know, Mark Simonich and I would claim to be Publius or the genius of Madison and Hamilton and a few, a little bit of John Jay. But uh, certainly, uh, you know, it is. It would, that, be, it would be interesting to, to read the. If I could find it. Right. I you never thought to keep it. But uh, it was. A, but, it, but Mark Simonich and I really. Um, this is the early days before this is before Paths of Glory came to a common understanding about what a CDG was. Now that we had one, right? And trying to because he was trying to say, well, what? How do I think about it in, you know, Hannibal? And I'm saying, well, here's what I was thinking about. And then Charlie Vasey had, you know, Charlie Vasey is like an old time. Uh, he's good. I haven't seen him forever. He's a great guy. He's a very interesting fellow. Uh, he's an English uh, gamer of note, who used to run a. Um, a newsletter called Perfidious Albion, which was the quintessential little review. It was like, came, it was like a mimeograph folded over thing. Every, we all got it, and it was and it was the it was the biting reviews of their day. You know, if they didn't like a game. I mean, and and only they would insult the game only in a way that an Englishman could insult anything. <laughs> you know, with faint. I mean, it was just really well done. And so every time you, you got a review in Perfidious Album, the first thing you said was, like, you know, do they hate it or like it, you know, that kind of right. thing. And in fact, when I did We the People, they gave me, I was given a, um, a title. They, they decided that I was the Duke of Ragusa because I'd done this really good game and they really <laughs> liked it. And so I was given, a, I was a titled Englishman now, the That's Duke great. of Ragusa, yeah. So that was their group. But anyway, so Charlie Vasey, the last time I saw Charlie, we were in, I was in London for a business meeting and we went to this place and we got drunk, basically. And we were talking about, that was another conversation about CDGs, and we were sitting there talking about CDGs, and he had a very interesting insight. He said that, uh, you know, the three main games of the CDGs, you know, was, it was like almost a triumvirate. You know, I did We the People, where I had separate ops and events. Mark Simonich did this, um, he was the one who integrated in Hannibal, the, every card had an event. That, that switch that people think of as a CDG is a Mark Simonich invention. He was a brilliant designer also. And he, that was what we came out of in our conversations about that may be another way to go. And then the third one was Ted Racer, when he did the Pairs of Glory, used the cards like he threw the, re, re, the resource point thing into it. And, and also introduced, um, you know, the sequencing of how the Bolshevik Revolution comes on and all this stuff. So those are the three main. And then after that, Everybody sort of more or less took, you know, area control came from We the People, and, you know, Hannibal had we, uh, area control. The battle cards were in the first two games, but they left, Racer went back to a CRT, and, you know, and all that stuff. So those are the three main games of the CDG, and everything really is a variant of those uh, games. Uh, oh, and also, uh, Racer was the one who came up with the scripted deck. That was the big pog thing, you know. And that's where the whole card counting, which everybody loves in Twilight Struggle, comes from. Right. Twilight Struggle brought in the mandatory of, you know, that you had to play everybody's events. And, you know, there was, they had their own innovations. But, you know, those are the three main pieces of those three games. And then Twilight Struggle sort of took it to another level uh, across the board. Uh, and, and, uh, and often based on one endorsement. You know, Alan Moon loved it and that. Well, you know, great? ticket to ride, and you know it was a ticket. That was their ticket right. to ride. That's a good thing. So, you know, I think about CDGs in, in that context, and so as you know, people do things. They say, you know, this is what it is, and they try to define something after the fact. But there's a lot more going on in the CDG uh, when you. And so when I did Sumter, 
uh, I went back to the roots of that. So this conversation with Charlie Vasey, as I was saying, where it was interesting is he said he felt, and then if you look at Unhappy King Charles, how he did that game, he felt that when you mix the events and the operations point, that's more of a 20th century thing because you have staffs. But prior to that, he felt that the 19th century and earlier is better represented by separating those two out, that there's a more distinct set of choices, and it captured more of the inertia of the period when you separate the events, because otherwise you have too much flexibility. He felt that the, when you integrated the, the number with you know, the, the classic CDG number with the event, that you create flexibility that doesn't exist in earlier history. And so when he went on Happy King Charles, he went back to the We the People model. And when I did Washington's War, I kept it for that very same reason, based on that right. conversation. Right. So there have been some, you know, I've been really blessed to have, you know, very smart friends and having these kind of cool conversations, especially when you're drinking. I mean, every conversation feels good when you're drinking. Yeah, you're, no, I'm much smarter when I'm drinking. Oh, yeah. Down. Yeah, and it's also interesting talking about uh, working on a game that's simpler, right? If you want it to be simpler and more playable, then you, and, and, and you know, the other thing that... that I, I, I just wanted to, I, simpler, yes. Easier to teach, yes. More playable, I don't equate those two together no that's fair and i i guess what i'm um, yeah what, right. yeah what, what i'm what i'm talking about when i say more playable is open to more people uh plays fast um and and, and so in washington's war right fewer choices related to the cards so i'm not trapped there right because i because i feel like um uh twilight struggle right that there's a huge dividend played paid for knowing the composition of the deck and how all those events interrelate, right? Right. And it takes you a long time to learn that. A simpler deck, I don't have to. I don't have to wait for that dividend to be effective. Well, I'll tell you an insight I've had recently, and I give great credit to our common friend uh, Volko Runke on this one. Um, so I like a hand of cards, right? So when you have seven cards in your hand, um, you are, you know, that there's a lot of choices of what how you play those cards out. Same thing in uh, Twilight Struggle. You know, got a hand. That, so not only do you have the complexity of understanding the, what's in the deck, but I got seven combinations, and how I play them is going to, you know, and you have the scoring card, and when I, you know, the order in which you do stuff matters. Right. Uh, and I like that. That's I personally like that. Plus, I'm angry because half the cards are your cards. Well, that's a, that's a and, Twilight Struggle thing, <laughs> which is that, which I don't do. <laughs> I, I I I've been asked a million times, you know, will you put mandatory <laughs> events into your games? And the answer is. That's, I'm not a fan of that. Ananda says that that's a Cold War problem. Right? I, I, first of all, Ananda's a brilliant game designer, and so is Jason. Yeah. And I cannot argue with brilliant success. You right. Know? right. I, I'm not going to. So, but for me personally, I feel that I don't want to. See, let me go back to what is the deck trying to. Let's go back to a little bit more of the fundamental. What is the deck representing, right? So. I am hopefully Lincoln or I'll talk for the people. I'm Lincoln or Davis. I should know what's going, what's possible or could happen in what order, right? So if I'm holding a Confederate event, effectively that event's not happening in, in this time in history. That one's just not going to happen. It's just not going to be there. Whereas if it's mandatory, everything always happens. So. You had the choice of everything's always going to happen. I mean, yeah, you can bury a few cards in the space race. And, I mean, I got all that. And, but that aside, other than the few places that we let you bury a card here or there, every event's going to play out from here to the end of the game, which when I play it is usually over by the early war anyway, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> I lose, and it's over. But that's what's going to happen. When you play a 
single deck, a lot of cards. Again, I've done the math on this, like 130 cards in, for the people, not the scripted deck thing, right? You are going to get uh, a lot more replayability, but also a lot more uncertainty. You just don't know what's going to come out of what order, what is going to be live this game and not live this game. And all I want, the, and, with, and people say there's too many cards. Well, 130 cards says it's going to reshuffle once. That's all I wanted to reshuffle. There'll be one reshuffle if the Emancipation Proclamation was the last card in the deck. Otherwise, it'll reshuffle on the Emancipation unless it happens, and then you'd still get a reshuffle because you run out of cards. So I got that all figured out as a general model for that one. When you got Paths of Glory, you got two decks. And so I always know what's in my deck and what events I will see eventually. And, you, and then you have thinning the deck mechanics and all that. I don't know that Roosevelt ever spent one second saying, hey, can I thin my event deck? I don't think that was a decision <laughs> that was ever made historically. But that's, right. you know, I'm trying to put you in that role. It's just how, what's very important to me. People say in uh, Empire of the Sun, they'll, you're, you're going to draw a kamikaze card long before the American. There's six of them in the deck. I did the math so that you will draw a kamikaze card once or twice at the right time in the game. Otherwise, it's a two, it's a straight utility two card. But they drives them crazy because it says kamikaze and it's early in the war. And why can't I have a scripted deck? I didn't build the deck that way. Now, I do have separate decks because the events were different enough that I couldn't make a single deck game. But I don't want it time scale. See, that's the, the pog thing, right? You got, it's, and again, works brilliantly, not a criticism. Ted, I love you. Uh, but when you separate the decks and you do it by early, mid, and late war, which is the Twilight Struggle took in, it is a different, it's a scripted, you know, it's like reading the book. And people love that. I want to be clear that people prefer that model I've experienced. But going back to where I was going with Volko. So where Volko, the brilliance of coin to me, besides the rest of it, but the main besides breakthrough. Every, yeah. Well, yeah, it's all brilliant. But, but the main breakthrough was by going to the, I see this card and the next card. And I actually figured it out mathematically. You dro exponentially drop the complexity of the decision space on the cards. The cards just become like scenes in a movie that you can decide to access or not. Right. But you're never confronted with, I got a hand of cards, what the hell do I do? Right. And that dropped the complexity of the game space tremendously, which people liked. Right. So they could focus more on. And so when I talk about complexity, I think there's three kinds of complexity. There is... If you play a game, oh, La Bataille de la Moscova, third edition, 18th version of the right rules, whatever. Right. Every time I'm playing that game with that version of the rules and I have to launch a cavalry charge, I break out in hives. Because I am now going to embark on, I, you know, a lot of procedure, you know. Uh, you know, do, does my cavalry going to charge? Are they going to? form square what are the guys around gonna do i mean it's like this microcosm game occurs because one and if you do multiple cavalry charges it's going to take a while that's and, one and, kind of complexity and you're doing it with your most important units oh yeah this yeah. is the imperial guard yeah. or it's like a carassier right. regiment or right. it's a big deal and it's in it's in long line formation and you got to curve around a hill and it, it's it's a whole big thing and it's a lot of fun right a lot of fun but that's what i call procedural complexity I could not remember that procedure. I have to literally take the rule book out every time. I could do four cavalry charges in a row and have the rule book out for all four cavalry charges. The next level of complexity is what I want to call um, teaching complexity. That is, the game has simple procedures, but there's enough of them that 
how they all fit together is not going to come across just like, so teaching is not simple. Right. And then the third kind of complexity is what I'm always going for is strategic complexity. In other words, I, the, the procedures are not that complicated, but to play it well, oh my God, that's going to take, a, that's, they, people call it a brain burner. I don't know what that means, but I guess it means it's hard. That's what I'm going for in my games always. I always <laughs> want it to be that, you know, so Pericles. Pericles has like, let's say it's got a half a dozen procedures in it. Each procedure is very straightforward, pretty simple, no big deal. But there's six of them. So to teach that is got a little bit of, you know, there's a little bit of hump getting the teaching in, which is why I, and by the way, I've, I've gotten very, I had a whole teaching thing like I did in Pacific War, but some people just are too macho. It must be, I think women would do this better. But guys just want to go, I'm playing a campaign on first try, and I've been a gamer for 100,000 years, and I don't understand this game. It's too hard. The answer is, hey, why don't you just follow the first 30 minutes like I asked you to, and just, do, just learn the six procedures separately, and then boom, it'll all fall together for you. And I've gotten some very positive feedback, but if you don't do that, I'm not saying you can't do it. I, anybody can do it, but it's not going to be, there's going to be a little bit of a hump there because you're, you're, you're trying to absorb the whole thing at one, you know, in your one hour is my 40 minutes of training will get you past, you know, my training is faster than your hour or two of trying to figure it out. If you just do what I ask, you'll do better. But that's, you know, gamers are gamers. It's your game. Do what you want. But then the complexity is all in the combos of the issues, which is what I wanted. And that's really, it gets a lot of fun. Uh, now, the, the last piece I want to talk about, it, there is a, and this is one of my uh, pet peeves and with all my gamer friends, so I, I apologize, but, I'm, but I would like you all to understand this, please. <laughs> complexity and time are not equal to each other. If a game takes three hours to play, it takes three hours to play. We're not talking about the you know, special theory of relativity, you know, or even the general theory of relativity. Is you know, if a scenario takes three hours, so Empire of the Sun, 1943 scenario, we've been playing it in conventions at WBC for a decade. A three, it's a three-hour scenario. Three hours. Now, could you learn how to play Empire of the Sun easily? Um, no. It's an advanced, you know, expert-level game. I'm sorry, but that was for me. It wasn't for you, so nothing personal. But once you understand the game, it's a three-hour scenario. Now, I played, um, what the heck was that game? It was uh, Alchemy. Big, popular Euro game. It had, even had an app, and it's kind of like a little bit like Clue, putting together ingredients to discover, you know, it's got wizard pictures, and it's really colorful and all that stuff. And it took... Um, it's a, it's a three-hour game. It's sometimes a four-hour. Some people tell who are really good at it. Maybe it's a, well, I can play a part of some faster than three hours, too. But, you know, it's a four- or five-hour game. It is considered a low-complexity game. But five hours is still five hours. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, time is time. So the idea that complexity equates to time is a total misnomer. Uh, my good friend Bruce Garrick will tell you, though, you, can't, you can teach alchemy faster because of the low complexity, it just takes a long time to play. It's harder to teach, you know, uh, Empire of the Sun. Actually, it's not. Uh, there is a, I tell you a funny story. So I'm in, I ran a, people know I used to run a large defense consulting business for uh, Booz Allen Hamilton. And I had, like about, I think I had about 6,000 people working for me. And so, and I had some amazing people, a lot of, lot of veterans, amazing people. And there was this guy, uh, uh, Admiral uh, Richard Jascott. 
You can look him up on, online. He's a great guy, a uh, naval guy. And he and I had gone to Europe. We were meeting up in Stuttgart to go to um, uh, AFRICOM to do some work with his old pe- you know, people he used to know there. And it's the night before, and it was this guy named Bill Flowett, Rich Jascott, and this uh, woman named Kathy Breeze. And it's nighttime, and, you know, we've been drinking. And so Jascott and Kathy go, what are you guys doing tonight? And Bill, well, Bill and I are going to play a part of the sun in my hotel room. So Jasko, that sounds like fun. And Kathy goes, oh, I'll do that. So we go up to my room, and the four of us play two-on-two. Well, it's really Bill versus Jascott and Kathy Breeze because uh, she, was, she was less interested, but she was, you know, wanted to hang out. Uh, Jascott is an admiral, never played a war game in his life. He picked up Empire of the Sun in about 15 minutes because as an admiral, he, he said, oh, you mean I'm doing this, this, and this like I do in the real world? Said, yeah. He goes, oh. He picked up, he, he destro- Bill Thoreau had played uh, Empire of the Sun multiple times. Jascott destroyed him. He's an admiral. Destroyed him. <laughs> Just destroyed him. I mean, it was like, it was almost like, oh, my God. 15 minutes, he, f- so my view is that if you understand the material, it's not a complicated, so here's an admiral, never played a game, picked it up in 15 minutes, and he was actually, I don't know if I could beat him. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm good at that game. <laughs> yeah. So, Again, I go back to what is complexity, and we, we sometimes, what I think is really happening in the world in general is the death of nuance. There's just no more nuance. It's like, yes, no, white, black, you know, red, yellow. I mean, it's just no, you know, there's no orange. <laughs> what happened to orange? <laughs> right. You know, it just all went away. Uh, and so people have these ideas, complexity equals time. That's a hard game. This is an easy game. Now, this one takes five hours. This one takes two hours you know, tell me what I'm supposed to understand here. But like I said, as a game designer, I am trying to understand, and by the way, it's changed. You know, the mood of the public and what they want has changed over, I've been doing this for, you know, 35, oh my God, more, over 40 years. Is that right? I started in 76. Do the math for me. You're smart. I started in 76. 41? Yeah, 41, 42 years. Yeah, oh my God, I'm old. Anyway, uh, so I've been doing this 40 years, and and what people have wanted across that period of time has changed dramatically. And also, in many cases, uh, I wanted to do things that were not what was out there. And so I find that my designs have done better over time, not initially. I, my, most of my designs, I mean, I have there's some guys, and I would say thank you to all of them who have backed me for 41 years, come hell or high water, love you all, thank you very much. Uh, but a lot of my games take time. Like Empire of the Sun was a disaster when it came. You know, the, the first run of Empire of the Sun didn't sell out for three or four years. It is higher rated on BGG now than it was. It went up from like a 7.1 to an 8.0 over the, over the, since it came out in 2005. Right. It took time. Uh, we're reprinting ni- France 1944. At the time, that was a disaster. People said it was the worst. Even friends of mine who were designers said it was the worst game they'd ever played. Now, all of a sudden, people go, wow. This game is, when was this game designed? Oh, it was back in 1986. What? You know, so I find that Churchill, when it came out, a lot of yelling and screaming. Now it's doing better now than when it first came out. I think the, the same thing is starting to happen for Pericles. It's just, mm-hmm. it was like, you know, the initial video guys come out and go, oh my God, my friends were, they were bleeding out of their ears and they cried and they, <laughs> they sobbed and I couldn't do it to them anymore. And I had to, I had to give them a game of, you know, uh, checkers so they could feel better about their lives again. I don't know what the hell's going on. Give them a puppy. Give them yeah. a puppy. We stroke right. puppies. I don't know. But now 
you know, people are starting to go, oh, well, this, why, I thought this game was hard. You know, the answer is no, it's not. But there's right. also, I think, what's starting to happen, there's enough people who know how to teach it. I even wrote an article about how to teach it. I even gave you a solitaire. So you don't even have to, if you don't even know what to do, just do what it would do for a while, and you'll see what the right moves are. Right. I mean, I don't know. That's I try. Great. That's great. So uh, I'm going to take you back to the topic of what you're working on now. Okay. I was at ConSim World Expo. Oh, yeah. I, and I'm sorry, sorry. I was... I. I, I cried that I couldn't go. Uh, it was uh, it was it's another great convention as you can imagine. John so, Kranz does an amazing job. He does, and it's a great facility and a great crew. So, GMT Gene Billingsley gives his annual uh, state of the state of the business address. Right, uh-huh. sure, always informative. Yep. So he mentions that Mark Herman is working on mm-hmm. a assassination of Caesar game. That is true. So uh, I wanted to prod you to talk about that if you're willing to. Oh, yeah, sure. So I just had a major breakthrough in the game. So that is – so remember I told you I'm starting because of my time. You know, I'm like a soda straw. I can only push so much through the soda straw. (laughs) Right. So my first view – and this happens to me a lot, by the way. I have – my second design is almost – I've designed most of my games twice because I – I learned from Dunnigan, I'll get something, I can actually get a play, I can sometimes design a game, first crack, in less than a day. I'll tell you about a cross Suez sometime. And I put that all down and I play it and I go, okay, this works, I hate it. And I throw that away. And that's really, I don't try to fix the thing that I don't like, but I look at it and I go, what did I like, what did I not like? And if I do that correctly, the next one's a lot closer. And sometimes I even do it three times because I'm not trying to do it quick. I'm trying to do it well. And so my first version of, of again, remember, we're, we're talking about a game like Fort Sumter that's going to play in 30 minutes. So let's be clear that, you know, and it's going to follow. It's going to be a CDG, okay? So, and I know you're working on one with South trying to see what I, which right. I like we should talk about and we're going to play. Uh, so... That, but, but as I'm doing, you know, it's the uh, Roman Civil War, right? It's Pompey the Great, Magnus, uh, Pompey the Great versus Julius Caesar. And I know an enormous amount. I've obviously done, I did uh, the Great Battles of uh, Caesar. So, I mean, I'm very familiar with the topic and the details. Anybody wants to know a lot about it, read Rubicon by Tom Holland. I mean, there's some really good stuff out there. And, of course, read Julius Caesar. He wrote, I mean, he was a phenomenal uh, writer, although... Unlike the Gallic Wars, he only wrote part of this book. They, they, they think there's like, even though it's all under his name, I think they think it's at least two and maybe even three or four different authors finished this book out. But regardless, it, it's not as good as Gallic Wars, but it's a, certainly a history of the Roman Civil War. And so I was going to do the game as a Roman Civil War game with, you know, taking provinces and, you know, that way. And as I'm doing that, I'm going, you know what? I really want to, I haven't done a real classic CDG in a while. I really want to do this as a CDG, so I'm going to do that. Gene, are you listening? (laughs) Um, But I really want to do this Assassination of Caesar game, and I realized that what would be a cooler game in this new version is you're going to assassinate Caesar. You're part of a conspiracy. And so now it's not about legions and armies and all that crap, excuse me, uh, stuff. Uh, it is now, I am Mark Anthony, I am Octavian Caesar, I am Brutus, and there's a fourth guy. And a little bit like, um, you ever play uh, Battlestar Galactica? Yes. 
who's the Cylon is not going to be clear who's trying to kill Julius Caesar and who's trying not to kill Julius Caesar. Oh, that's great. So, and then the cards that you're going to be playing on and using area, so the area influence is on senators and people and events or what you're going to play your tokens on. And as you build up your tableau of humans or, or things, as you get to the final crisis, it's now we, it's who's who and we're going to play out, does Caesar get killed or not? So nobody's Julius Caesar, but you're all trying to either not kill him or kill him, but somebody's going to be trying to kill him. And then whether that works or not and who wins uh, comes out on top. And part of it is, even if Julius Caesar gets assassinated, depending on how it happens, you could lose the game. Even if you assassinate Caesar, because in the end, the, assass- the, the uh, conspirators lost. Octavian and Mark Antony initially won, and ultimately Octavian won, although I'm not going to go that far. Yeah, so that's, that's what the game's going to be about now. And now it's like, this is fun. Now, so now I'm doing the research on the who's who in the Roman zoo now. We will continue the interview with a question to Mark about what kind of music he listens to. There are four basic categories, I would say. First off, every so often I just have to hear the, you know, Beethoven's Ninth. <laughs> you know, so I do happen to love Beethoven. I, mean, I, don't not, I don't say I like classical music. I like Beethoven. It's interesting, yes. I just really, I don't know what it was. Uh, somebody gave me a, a full set when I was young, and I just listened the heck out of them. And so I still I kind of know them really well. So I love that. Uh, I love, um, you know, I grew up in the 60s, so, you know, mid to late 60s, you know, the really early stuff that's almost 50s stuff, not as much, although most of it, but anything that's like mid to late 60s when I was, I had a friend who was a scientist and he had a, he had a theory. His theory was that you remember the name of every song that you heard on the radio when you were 14, and I think it's true. So all the songs I heard when I was 14, which would have been uh, 54, 64, 68, so 68, 69. So give me a few band names. I mean, well, I mean of, oh, you know, um, uh, the, uh, you know, what do you call it? Uh, Simon and Garfunkel right. was a huge Simon. Uh, well, this is more 70. Billy, I've seen Billy Joel. Billy Joel grew up in my area, so I've seen Billy Joel when he was nobody. Right. They used to go to this place in Hempstead called the, Olymp- the Olympia Theater, which was an old um, movie theater turned into a, like a, a venue. And he played, I seen him there six or eight times when he had like one album out. Right. So he was, you know, he was early in his career. Um, I love Laura Nero. Uh, I love, um, of course, the Beatles. I mean, right. you can't, uh, Stones, Pink Floyd. Uh, I have a lot of experiences with Pink Floyd. Uh, what else? Uh, so there's that kind of stuff. And then I happen to love country music when women are singing it. I love Dixie Chicks and uh, was it Antebellum and uh, I just love all, all, all that stuff. Right. That's great. And, uh, and then last, you know, I still like me some hard rock. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
not like the t not hard metal rock, uh, not eighties rock. More like um, Led Zeppelin. Yeah, oh yeah, Zeppelin, ACDC, uh, AC uh, Oreo Speedwagon, right? Uh, that kind of stuff. That's great. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, but usually in my car, I'm I'm playing. Um, oh, and I love. I told you I love Cat Stevens. So right. you know, I, I, Moody Blues. Oh, oh, it was a huge. You know, college was Moody Blues. You know, right. so I like that kind of stuff. And I and with the you know the XM radio, I have stations. I just listen to that. You know, right. in fact, driving here, I was listening. Well, actually, because I, I wanted my phone, they tell me the directions through the speaker. <laughs> I was listening to Pandora Radio, and I had this Dixie Chick station. So I was listening to all country female country uh, ballads, right. you know, come in here. Right, that's great. So what about uh, TV, movies? What have you seen uh, lately? Like? Oh, well, last night I watched the two, the second to last in the season finale of The Expanse. I love The I love, I'm a big sci-fi, and one of the biggest problems I have in my marriage, if there's any problem, is <laughs> my wife despises sci-fi. It's my favorite genre, and so there's, going to the movies can be very difficult. Right, but Carol will play games with you, so I. She will, I, but, but to, that's, a pity, that's a pity thing. That's a pity thing. <laughs> yeah, that's a, when, yeah. When I, if I sit there and, she, and she'll go, and I'm really a smiley guy, and, she, and I have a way of do. I do like this dog face. She goes, "What's wrong?" I go, "I gotta play this new game." She goes, she goes "Okay, I'll play with you." <laughs> and then, and then she's you know, and the, the thing is, she's very quick on these things. Right. She's like really like she's trying to learn how to play bridge. She likes um, plays mahjong, so she likes games. But if, and by the way, Fort Sumter, I want to just give a big shout out to her. for So Fort Sumter had 10 versions. The first nine, she nixed. Oh, that's great. And I, I had, and the guys at J.R. Tracy's crowd were playing. They liked all the, ver I mean, they liked all the versions. And the funny thing is, I think as she liked it more, they liked it less. But now I'm seeing people liking it that are more like Carol. Right. I see, I see guys playing with their wives. I see women just playing with women. I see, you know, uh, Meeple Lady's kind of cool. She's been playing it. Right. I see, um, you know, the, the, the more crossover guys are playing it. So she kept saying, it's too hard, it's too hard. So I moved it. I said, let me just experiment. Let me just take it to where she thinks it's okay. She likes Splendor. Right. She right. loves that game Splendor, which is right. a great game. So I was moving it towards the Splendor end of the spectrum. And that's like a rebranding exercise in a way. So I give her due credit that the way, it, the reason it's as clean and, and also I got to give a big shout out to Kai Jensen, who's awesome. Uh, that's Chad Jensen's wife. She right. did the rule. She took my rules and they were a good set of rules, but she turned them into fr happy rules. I, I don't maybe, I, I write gamer rules, you know, like right. they, you know, every, because the gamer got, you know, the war gamers, if they think of all this weird, you know, it's Tuesday, you know. Right, right. And she just rewrote the rules and it came up. They're, very, they're just kind of clean and right. friendly. I, I couldn't have done that. Right. No, the rule I prod you about all the time, which is that, no, you, you, cannot, you cannot move more than your movement allowance. Right. <laughs> why, do you, why do you need that rule? Because but. somebody said, can I? <laughs> <laughs> but but you're, you're right. The, the rules are terrific. They, they've moved a long way, right, toward kind of the next generation of rule set. Uh, with a lot of interesting uh, examples and, and graphic presentation of the, the materials. So well, you know what's funny? Uh, obviously, I, I grew up in SPI, and I, I recently played um, Destruction of Army Group Center, which is a classic Jim Dunnigan, Al Nofi, East Front game. I had had my copy since I was in middle school, unpunched. 
And one day I was saying, I, and I'm thinking of doing this, you know, companion game to 1944. And I said, I don't really know. I'm not a big East Front guy. It just don't like Nazis, don't like commies. So just never really got into wanting to play either side. It never felt like I could identify with either side. So I never really got that excited about East Front games. But I, I'm not going to design one for the first time. So I said, I ought to just play a game, see what this even looks like on the map. So I remembered this game, which is like the only time it's been done, really. Uh, that, I mean, I'm sure somebody else did it, but that's the only one I was aware of. And I pulled it out, I punched it out. And I didn't realize, it's like a bulge game. You know, big Soviet buildup. Launches the, a lot of first turn surprise and all this kind of stuff and supply problems for the Soviets and they push back the Germans and big bulge and then they run out of juice and the game's over and you, you figure out who won. That set of rules, going back to rules, solid set of rules that would never pass muster in today's world. Right. I could ask 100,000 questions that didn't mean anything, but it works fine. Right. Yeah, it's just, you know. No, I, I remember when Victory Games came out with uh, the first, I, you know, Gulf yeah. Strike was probably my first, and and it was a big, it was a big step. Well, Gulf Strike was funny. Is <clears throat> the commercial version of a Pentagon game, right? So it started out not as a commercial game, right? And it became a commercial game. Uh, so that's a, and the rules in that one were written in. I had rules. But now we have to go to press. And Bob Ryer, who's a close friend, uh, just looks at me and says, more or less says, these are not complete. They suck, but we have to typeset them. So literally, you had to see the, the old Monarch Avalon. We're sitting in the typesetting machine on a weekend. It's like a Saturday. We get down there, and we're going to press like a Monday. And I'm sitting in, and figure two desks that are like back to back to each other. One's a typesetting machine. I'm typing, I pull it out of the typewriter, I put it over my shoulder, he grabs it, and he starts typesetting it. Wow. First draft, those rules. And they're one of the better, I've had less rules questions on that set of rules, because I wrote them in one sitting. Right. So, and they probably could have been, you know, massaged, there was no time, Yeah. Right. And so, but they came out, I've never gotten any real meaningful rules questions on them, so it, they couldn't be that bad. No doubt. No doubt. So, um, movies. So, good question. Um, you would think I'd go to the movies more, given that this is Carol and I. The last movie we saw, going to the movies is something we, we rarely do because everything is on. We have a big TV set, and you can get everything on TV. But the last movies I saw, so not what I saw with her, I saw the new Blade Runner. I saw, what was the big... Um, it was, uh, oh, I saw Solo. I really liked, I, it's funny. I thought Solo was one of the best Star Wars movies ever made, and it died in the box office. So <laughs> it, it's just like me. If I like something, I used to, Carol and I used to like a, any TV show that we liked. I always used to feel like I should write a, a condolences to the crew because they're going to be canceled. It's the end. All of my shows get canceled, and only now in the Netflix, Amazon world, they get resurrected. Right. That's great. Uh, you know, but... Um, so, so let's go down a different path then. Yeah, what about books? books? I know you oh. read a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, okay, so if we eliminate the books that I'm reading for game projects, which right now, you know, rereading all the Thucydides for the 80th time and, you know, and, I, and Kagan stuff and, uh, you know, uh, Civil War books of back in my life because of the Gettysburg. I've written, I've reread like all the, 
I've read, I have literally 50 books on Gettysburg. Right. I have 50 games on Gettysburg. I have been re-exploring all of that. So taking all, all that off the table. Um, so there's this woman, I think her name is McMillan. She wrote, a, I have to remember my degrees in ancient history. So I love that whole topic set. What? You're bumping your mic. There Better? Sorry there. about that. That's all right. So there's a whole, um, so taking away all my research stuff, uh, I think her name is McMillan, but she wrote this a Song of Achilles, which is like a, it's a fictionalized version of, of, of the Iliad, but from Achilles' point of view. Right. So I just started Circe, and Circe, if you don't remember, is the sorceress who holds Odysseus in the Odyssey. It's, it's actually, the book, I think, starts actually with him on her island, and it's, it's an immediate rest back to the beginning of the, you know, how he gets out of that, and he goes forward, you know, that's, so he's on Circe's island, and she's got him intoxicated, and so she's, you know, she's a witch, and she's, you know, she's got him in some, you know, sexual thrall, so she wrote a book from the perspective of Circe. And it's gotten huge reviews, and I, I like this woman's writing, so I'm reading Circe, which is kind of cool. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, maps of Gettysburg, and uh, oh, there's a uh, Barry Strauss book on the uh, the death of Caesar. You know, it's good for the for that game, and you know, stuff on the Cold War. You know, I'm all over the lot. Right, all That's over great. the lot. So, what about uh, what games do you play other than your <laughs> other than my games? Ten prototypes. That you're in. Um, so let's see. Well, so I belong to this group, uh, J.R. Tracy is sort of like running the equivalent of a French salon where, you know, we, we sit there and play chess or, you know, talk about philosophical issues and it's a great group of guys. And, um, <clears throat> a big fan favorite there is terraforming Mars. I've played that a lot of times. Um, uh, Hawkeye, uh, Rory Allard's uh, favorite game. So every time we go, let's play, we play terraforming Mars. Uh, I've played uh, Cataclysm's great. I've been playing. I uh, played Cataclysm a couple times with uh, Scott and um, Bill at JRs, and had a great time with that. I've been playing Long Street Attacks, which is the Herman. I told you that earlier. Right. Um, what else? Uh, trying to think of the last games I've played that weren't mine. Oh, I played Splendor with Carol and some people. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, and I had my wife's in this Mahjong group, and they're all uh, all Italian girls, and they're they. I tweeted out uh, they all like Fort Sumter, and they, by the way, you want to talk about vicious competitive gamers? Oh my God, they scare me. <laughs> now you said Mahjong. Is it bridge or Mahjong? Mahjong and bridge. And bridge. Yeah. It, yeah. But they really they I've really. Seen the- pictures of them playing Fort Sumter. It's hilarious. Uh, it is. And, and by the way, the trash talk is awesome. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it, it, it is deadly serious. There's right. no quarter given. I never, so usually in Fort Sumter, like if you go to the marker or not, usually your first game of Fort Sumter, you know, you've got a totally open map, you've got a couple of cubes, and you kind of start to focus. People tend to like find a lane and they don't fight with each other. Right. This crowd First cubes. Oh, you want to be washed? I'm after you. I mean, there was no point scored. Right. They were literally pounding each other. That's with, funny. They were taking. It was like attack from the first card play on. They were jumping on each other. It was amazing right. to see what they were. And I'm going, wow, that's like a red meat kind of game. And these are, yeah, this is not a crowd you want to mess around with. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. Well, on that note, uh-huh. then let me close. Please. I, I appreciate. Uh, 
appreciate you being so generous with your time. It's great hanging with you and great talking to you and uh, uh, excited about what you're working on and look forward to playing some more of it. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And uh, we'll have to uh, – next time we have to play some Liberty or Death. You know, I, you I want to play with you one time. I, I, want, I want to see how – the Indians get played well. I need to see. I need to see me some Indian play here. Patience. That's patience, it. Patience. Patience. That's it. All That's right. It. Take care. Bye. So that's a wrap for this podcast. Thank you for listening. It would be greatly beneficial to me and the podcast if you would post a review on iTunes. I'll publish some more notes and references on my website, conflictsimulations.com. Join the Herald on Games Guild on BoardGameGeek and leave me a comment with your thoughts and ideas. Thanks to the Visalia, California-based band Slow Season for the intro and outro music. Check them out on Facebook, Spotify, and iTunes. I'll close with a special thanks to Mark Herman. And that's it for me. As always... I have the honor to be with the greatest respect, Your Excellency's most obedient servant, and I'll be back soon.